and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. This week, you'll hear another conversation from one of our Storied events. Storied is a monthly virtual event series that features discussions about craft, creativity, and publishing. The discussion you'll hear in this episode features Shana Lambert, author of the novel Petra, Eve Lazarus, author of Vancouver Exposed, and Michael Pryor, author of Burning Province. They discuss writing history and the past with poet Fiona Tinway Lam. Fiona will introduce Shana, Eve, and Michael, but let me introduce Fiona. Fiona Tinway Lam is the author of three poetry collections and a children's book. She edited The Brightwell Contemporary Canadian Poems on Facing Cancer and co edited the nonfiction and poetry collection Love Me True Writers Reflect on the Ins, Outs, Ups, and Downs of Marriage with Jane Silcott. Her work has won the New Quarterly's Nick Blatchford Prize and has been shortlisted for the City of Vancouver's Book Award. Her work appears in more than 40 anthologies, including the Best Canadian Poetry in English, and her award-winning poetry videos, made in collaboration with others, have screened internationally. She teaches at SFU Continuing Studies, and Fiona is also the City of Vancouver's Poet Laureate. Here's Fiona to start the conversation. I'm so pleased to be hosting uh, this uh, panel today, Writing the Past. We have three terrific writers, Shana Lambert, Eve Lazarus, and Michael Pryor. Poetry, nonfiction, and fiction, covering all the genres. I'll introduce each writer uh, one at a time, and I'll read for five minutes. I may chat with them a little bit, and then we'll proceed on to the second and then the third, and then we'll have a discussion. So we'll start first with Shana Lambert. Shana Lambert is the author of the novel Radiance and two books of stories, Oh My Darling and The Fallen Woman, both of which were Globe and Mail best books of the year. Her fiction has been published to critical acclaim in Canada, the UK, and Germany, and has been nominated for the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, the Evergreen Award, the Naduna Gleed Award, and the Frank O'Connor Award for the short story. Wow, that's a lot of awards. <laughs> Good book. Her stories have been chosen four times for Best Canadian Stories and have appeared in many publications, including The Walrus, Plowshares, The Journey Prize Anthology, and many, many, many more. So welcome, Shana. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Fiona. Yes, and to the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, it's, it's so delightful to be here discussing craft and talking about the past and being with such uh, wonderful writers, Eve and, and Michael and Fiona, who's our new Poet Laureate. That's just so exciting. It's lovely to be cozying up with you and sharing some reading and some talking and, and digging into this question of the past and, and how we as writers um, deal with it and come to terms with it. So in my book, there's a Petra, my, my, my latest novel. Um, this is quite a theme. And um, my various characters have um, struggles to deal with the past. The Petra is about, uh, it's a fictionalized story of Petra Kelly, who was the founder of the German Green Party, very charismatic, 
anxious, neurotic, beautiful, generous, sexy, a, a complete bundle of, of, um, of oppositions, a larger than life person. And I, I loved fictionalizing her. I loved living with her for the many years when I was writing this book, though sometimes she also drove me crazy as she did uh, the, the, the friends and people that I interviewed um, as I got to know her better when I went to Germany. Um, she falls in love with a German general and it's that uh, couple of oppositions that so fascinated me, this peace activist and the general. And the book is narrated from an ex-lover of hers, um, one Manfred Schwartz. So um, without further ado, I'll just jump in. I'm going to read um, a couple of pages from the second chapter, which is called Strangers from Another Time. And as I say, it's, it's mar- narrated by this third character, this sort of male alter ego of mine, Manfred Schwartz. This was West Germany, 1980. In other words, you couldn't throw a stone on any university campus without hitting students who felt that they were carrying the ghosts of Auschwitz on their backs and the silence of our parents' generation up on our backs alongside those ghosts. They handed us their abominations without words in homes soaked with the good smells of apple pie cooling on the windowsills happy times in front of the fire. They just forgot to mention the pile of bones, the whitened corpses buried in the backyard behind the trees. And we, detectives and prosecutors, had to dig them up for ourselves. What's this, Daddy? Holding up a collarbone, a breastbone. I found it behind the shed. It's a metaphor, but it felt like this, just under the skin of our daily lives. At the Freie Universität Berlin in the late 60s, my friends and I spent hours in mental agony. Who were these people, our parents? We knew them intimately, and yet we feared them. And we distrusted ourselves because we were their offspring. But for Petra Kelly, it was different. She'd moved to the States when she was 12 after her mother married Commander Kelly, a U.S. soldier, and stayed there until her mid-20s. This long sojourn away protected her from the self-disgust. She was from the land of Coca-Cola, had campaigned for Robert Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, and had marched on Washington for civil rights. These things made her clean, made her attractive to our movement. She didn't have a Marxist bone in her body, and the politics of the 68ers, the ardent politicized students of Germany, with our fury at the duplicity of our parents was quite foreign to her. We're all interconnected. This was what she loved to say, loved to think. And she'd quote from Gregory Bateson, what pattern connects the crab to the lobster and the orchid to the primrose and all four of them to me? As for the use of force, she opposed it utterly because, and I really can hear her voice speaking, we all have a core of goodness to us, Manfred. This is what she thought. Even the most unhallowed criminals, even the man who sat in the pit of the missile silo with his finger flexed on the button. My Marxist self would take umbrage at her belief in human goodness. But him, Petra would say, why, he's just a child following orders. But what about the man who gives the orders, I'd ask her, and the man who gives the orders to the man who gives the orders? There they were, lined up like the chefs in my apron, 
on my apron, one inside the other. And yes, according to Petra, they were all interconnected and all redeemable. The only real evil in the world came from reducing a person to the status of evil. This is what Petra Kelly thought. There's a well-known word, so I'm just flipping ahead now because little little piece just exactly about the subject of this of this video. There's a well-known word in German that means coming to terms with the past. Vergangenheitsbewältigung. One of those mouthfuls that our beautiful language excels excels at producing. I'd explored this phrase at university in West Berlin a, a decade earlier, poring over my Adorno and the Mitscherliches, the inability to mourn, which I carried everywhere in my backpack. It detailed all the sins of our fathers and our mothers, their failure to face their Nazi collusion, all the dodging, the excusing, the forgetting, the use of defense mechanisms to ward off the intensity of guilt, a dance of forgetfulness, excuses, quick grabs at absolution, blaming others. I thought of this as I lay in bed that night, wondering about Petra's surprising blankness on the subject of Emile, her general's war. Really, she had surprised me. I had assumed that in bed, coiled in the sweat and semen-soaked sheets, they had traced each other's pasts as she had with me, calling out the hurts and old pains, the secrets. I didn't try to do a thing. Yet looking back, I think my pointed questions to Petra released a sort of pheromone of distrust into the air. That's the way I can, that's the best way I can describe it. An invisible substance, like a gas leak in a house. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful, Sheena. I had a question about um, Manfred, the character who is, is witnessing his ex-lover and her love affair. And I won't give away too much. People who know about Petra Kelly's, Kelly's real life will know what happens um, or who have read the book. But uh, he's observing and he's actually, you know, hearing the lovemaking uh, going on and, and, and so forth. Now, did you already know German and the German psyche about the past? And um, how did you dig into that? Oh, well, I read a lot. I have German relatives. Oh. My brother was living in Germany. Um, my grandfather came from Germany to found an idealistic commune in British Columbia in the 20s. My mother grew up part German. Um, jeepers creepers. I think that what happens is when you're writing fiction, you take what you've experienced and you kind of try to slide it over into something new and use what you know. I mean, it's just like empathy with people in, you know, whether you're a writer or a reader, you're, you, you're constantly kind of taking what you know and applying it to new people to, in order to understand them. And that's, that was the fictional experience for me. I had this huge swath of things. I didn't know the German experience in Berlin in the eighties. I didn't live that, but I did leave, live. I was one of the, organizers of the peace movement in Canada in, in, in that same time. And so I was able to kind of use my personal experience and I was able to use my relatives experience of, you know, what they told me about growing up German um, in order to try to understand that, that, that psyche. And then I read a lot. 
That's great. The other thing that really struck me um, before we move on to the next uh, writer is you have this wonderful uh, opening epigraph uh, with Anna Akhmatova, who is referred to in the book. Mm. So, and there's a lyricism that runs through your book as well. And I wanted to know if there was, that was something um, that Petra Kelly actually had a love of poetry and, um, or if that was you, it was hard to know where the true story is and where the fictional part comes in, which is a sign of skill that you wove it so well together. Okay, Fiona, first of all, nobody has ever asked me that question. It takes, <laughs> it takes a poet. Thank you. <laughs> and yes, she did. Oh. And yes, she had Anna Akmatova beside her bed Amazing. when she died. Yes. And she loved her. And the, I'll just read the epitaph at the, at the beginning. Uh, you will hear thunder and remember me and think she wanted storms. That's exactly a, the perfect fit for Petra Kelly, these strong, powerful, interesting, yes. fascinating women that compel us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, and thank you for asking that question. I thought about that a lot. And when mm-hmm. I finally landed on that and put that at the front, I was so happy. And then my editor was put a little mark beside it and said, I love this. And I, yes. I was so happy. Yeah. Well, it's just like hands reaching together. The interconnectedness is there and the metaphor that runs through the metaphors. Through and, the it's, and it's not just her. I mean, it was so, at one point I, I worked a lot with just to work Rosa Luxemburg in, you know, like just this idea that we are a chain of these powerful women, so many of whom get erased. And, and she was part of that chain. And she had... Um, she didn't forget people, you know, she didn't, she wasn't the kind of person who would have ignored what happened under Stalin in the thirties. She would have been as incensed by it as, you know, she would have held it in her heart and she did. She was a very well-read woman and uh, and a very poetic person. Yeah. Thanks so much for that, Sheena. We'll come back with some more questions. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So the next reader we have is Eve Lazarus. Eve is a Vancouver writer and podcaster with an Aussie accent, which you're going to hear soon, and a passion for true crime stories, cold cases, and non-traditional history. Yay for non-traditional history. (laughs) She's the author of four Arsenal pulp titles, Cold Case Vancouver, the city's most baffling unsolved murders, a BC bestseller, and a 2016 finalist for the Bill Duffy Bookseller's Choice Award at the BC Book Prizes, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Murder by Milkshake. You have great titles, Steve. <laughs> Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. And Vancouver Exposed, searching for the city's hidden history. She's also the author of Sensational Vancouver, Sensational Victoria, Bright Lights, Red Lights, Murders, Ghosts, and Gardens and her book, At Home with History, The Untold Secrets of Greater Vancouver's Heritage Houses, was a 2008 City of Vancouver Book Award finalist. Welcome, Eve. Thank you, Fiona. So, uh, Vancouver Exposed. I was just going to talk a little bit about how it came about, and it hopefully will make sense. Vancouver Exposed really comes out of my blog, Every Place Has a Story. And I started this blog after my first book came out at, at Home with History. People would, the idea behind Home with History was that uh, house has a genealogy or a social, social history like a person. And it was telling the stories of the house uh, through the people and the events that happened there. 
And after the book came out, people would, you know, tell me these stories. They said, oh, my, you know, Auntie Pam with a madam or, you know, Uncle Sam with a bootlegger and of course I'm making up these names but I'd get these great stories and occasionally people would send me photos from the family album and I just had nowhere to put these so I'd started the blog and it really became a kind of repository for other people's history. So a few years back it was coming up to its 10th anniversary and I said to my publisher Brian Lamb what would you think about doing a book and he said great let's do it and sort of Vancouver Exposed came about so I was going to read from one of the stories. They're all quite short, blog length, about most of are under 500 words and lots of pictures. And really what's happened is that um, in this particular story, I'd written just a short history about the Canada Post building, which I've always kind of loved this postmodern sort of building and when it was about to be, you know, when it was sold and it was about to be changed as it's been now. And after this little history came out, people started writing about their own experiences with it. And I ended up rewriting and rolling it all in and it became this story. So I'll just read it. When the main post office was built on West Georgia in the 1950s, it was the largest welded steel structure in the world. It was essentially a five-story machine that covered an entire city block wrapped in an international style exterior and capped with a rooftop helipad, which was used all of twice before someone did the math and figured out that delivering mail by helicopter from the post office to the airport wasn't a viable option. I'm a huge fan of the building and its art, two identical coats of arms on the front and a 16-foot postman cut into Swedish red granite adjacent to the Homer Street entrance. All the work of Paul Huber, Another of Huber's pieces took up a chunk of the wall inside the southeast corner of the building. The ceramic of a woman and child originally overlooked a large retail area. It was highly visible to anybody riding up the escalator to the mezzanine. Former operations manager Andrew Langdon tells me that over the years the retail area shrank as small postal outlets opened up in places like Shoppers Drug Mart. Walls went up to repurpose a space and the mural was hidden from public view. For decades, the only people who could see the mural were three or four employees who worked in the restricted area. I was amazed when I saw it for the first time in the 90s, says Langdon. It was at least 12 feet high. It was almost as big as a whole room itself. After I wrote about the mural on my blog, Blair Mercer told me that his mother, Beatrice Mary Hayes, was a model for the woman in the ceramic. Beatrice told Blair an architect approached her at a party in Shaughnessy in the early 1950s. The architect was apparently quite taken with Beatrice, who was a buyer for Hudson's Bay, and told her that he'd commissioned an artist to do a cer ceramic for the new post office. He asked her if she'd be willing to sit for him. Blair remembers his mother first taking him to the post office to see the ceramic when he was about 10. There isn't much known about the Hungarian-born Paul Huber, possibly because he only lived in Vancouver for about five years. I did find out that Huber moved to Vancouver in 1954 and three years later brought out his wife Sybil and two sons, Dezo and Mark, from England. I tracked Dezo down at his home in Ashcroft, BC. Dezo says his father was in a relationship with a doctor and when he and his brother and mother arrived, his father installed his mistress in a room behind his studio and moved his family into the apartment above. 
Deso says his mother tolerated the situation. She didn't have much choice. Hubert died in 1959 from asthma and emphysema at the age of 46. In the 1950s and 60s, Kitsilano was filled with artists. Painter Jack Aykroyd lived next door to the Hubers and sculptor Alec Emrady was next door to him. Other artists who lived in the apartment building or nearby included Frank Molnar, Jack Dale, Jock Hearn and George Fertig, as well as poets John Newlove, Judith Copperthorne and Bill Bissett. When I profiled Frank Molnar in 2009, he told me that Emrady had hired him and Aykroyd to help with Girl in a Wetsuit, the sculpture that sits on a rock in the water off Stanley Park. Copperthorne was one of three women, three women, excuse me, who modelled for the girl. And Deso says his father hired George Norris, famous for the sculpture, the crab outside the Museum of Vancouver, and highly regarded sculptor David Marshall for 50 cents an hour to help make glaze and then install the ceramic tiles at the Canada Post building. Huber had David Lambert, any relation, Shane? <laughs> anyway, sorry, just notice that. A writer and ceramic engineer installed a kiln in his Kitsilano studio and supplied the glazes. Deso would hang out in his father's studio when he wasn't at school. The tiles were about half an inch thick and made by hand, he told me. Once we fired them, my father would paint each tile individually. There were hundreds of tiles and sometimes the colours didn't come out right after you fired them. All of a sudden you'd had 50 wrecked tiles and you'd have to do it all again. I dropped by Huber's former studio and apartment in July 2019. John Taylor, an artist, photographer and set designer, had lived there since 1988 and kindly gave me a tour. Taylor didn't know if Huber, his mistress, or the kiln which once stood in his apartment. Cheryl Harrison was brought in to preserve and safely remove the 12 foot by 20 foot mural from its wall at the former post office. The, the 264 tiles, each measuring, measuring a little less than 10 inches square, were then packed in more than 60 boxes to wait until the mural can be reassembled and installed in the new mixed use building called the Post, along with a few thousand Amazon employees when it's finished around 2023. Fascinating. What's great about your book, Eve, is that it, there's something for everybody. There's ghost stories, there's romance and intrigue and a little bit of, you know, <laughs> affairs and so forth. Um, so many things struck me in your book and I love all the photographs as well of Vancouver, unrecognizable. Uh, often um, from how much has been changed. Of course, it's a repeat, the development that keeps erasing and erasing um, the city. So it's very important to have a book like yours um, with these, these snapshots in time. What's cool too is it's this hidden artwork. You have many um, snippets about hidden artwork through the, the city. Could you talk a little bit about that since you talked about the mural? Yeah, the, the mural was fascinating because it just came up by accident and had been hidden for about 50 years. So I found that really intriguing in the way it came about just by someone sending me a photo and, and dropping that. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole on that story because, first of all, I had no idea who created it or the art outside. So 
I chased down Donald Luxton, who was a heritage uh, expert o- on it, and to find out who it was, and, and then just chased down Paul Huber's family and, and got the story from that. So, so that was a lot of fun. And but there are a lot of you're, you're right murals that just fascinated me that that have just been either you know completely lost or, or hidden. And um, there's one in I think the, the number is nine 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 Hastings Street, and it was uh, a bank building that was built in the 70s I think and it was a huge huge sculpture that was built for the for the opening must have been earlier than that anyway and when it changed hands the the new people remodeled they didn't like it but they didn't know what to do with it because the building had actually physically been built around this massive massive bronze sculpture so they just kind of walled it up and and put something modern in front of it so you know one day that's you know just going to come out and uh, there was the um, Georgia Medical and Dental Building that um, I never saw, but it was there until about 89, uh, just where Cathedral Place is opposite the Hotel Vancouver. And I was always fascinated by the nurses. Like, there were 70-ton oh, yes. nurses that, that used to be on it. And I was driving down Hastings into Burnaby one day and I looked into one of those, you know, the yards where you see all the gnome sculptures and things. And, and there was one of these nurses and I thought, oh, my God, is that one of the nurses from the building? And so I stopped to, to, to find out. And it turned out it wasn't. It was one of the fibreglass ones that they made as a replica to put up there. So this became a sort of, you know, treasure hunt to find out what happened to the, the actual, uh, the real, these huge um, nurses. And it turns out they're at UBC and, and on this new building. Well, and then there's Shadbolt murals and BC Binning murals and so forth. Oh, my, this treasure house of art that's <laughs> gone and disappeared. Um, but we can use your book as almost a map. I want to find the polka dot house, the house with the big polka dots. <laughs> that's still it. <laughs> and what's also very cool, there's so much entwined in this book, is that you cover Vancouver's very um, multi-ethnic, multi-racial history. So you have the crystal pool where there was discrimination and exclusion mm-hmm. of people of color from swimming, just like in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the uh, the squatters in Stanley Park, but Stanley Park isn't just a beautiful place that we visit. There were people who were living there, indigenous and Portuguese and mm-hmm. Chinese people buried there and so forth and all covered with roses and trees now. <laughs> so there's that interesting. And you touch upon Hogan's Alley Um so it's, it's such a, a really rich book. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eve. So we're going to go on to our next uh, and final reader before we go into further questions. We have Michael Pryor. Michael Pryor is a writer and teacher. He's the author of two books of poems, Burning Province, published by McClelland and Stewart in 220, which won the Canada-Japan Literary Award and the BC and Yukon Book Prizes Dorothy Livesey Poetry Prize and also Model Disciple with Vehicule Press in 216, which was named one of the best books of the year, poetry, best book of the year by CBC. Pryor is the recent recipient of fellowships from the New York Public Library's Cullman Center and the Jerome Foundation. His poems have appeared widely in Poetry, The New Republic, Narrative Magazine, The Walrus, The Academy of American Poets, Poem a Day, I get those every day, and elsewhere. He is an assistant professor of English and an ACM Mellon faculty fellow at McAllister College. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much, Fiona, for that lovely introduction. And um, thank you, Megan and Sharon, for organizing the event. 
Um, and thank you, Eve and Shana, for, for your wonderful work. I'm calling them from New York City, so I want to acknowledge that where I am right now in New York is unceded ancestral land of the Lenape people, many of whom were forced from the land due to persistent settler aggression. So I'm going to read just two poems uh, from my book, Burning Province, the first and the last poem, I think. Um, and the book focuses a lot on memory, particularly gen uh, generational memory, the ways memories become stories and become transmitted between generations in relation to the dispossession and displacement of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. Uh, my maternal grandparents uh, and their families were forced into a camp in the interior. And so the poem thinks, or the, the book thinks a lot about that. Um, and this first poem is an ekphrastic poem. So it's, a, it's responding to a piece of visual art. And the piece of art it's responding to is by the Japanese Canadian artist, Akela Isomura. Um, and it's her uh, suitcase project. And I highly encourage you to look it up. It's really brilliant. Uh, Isomura went up and down the West Coast of Canada and America and contacted fourth and fifth generation Japanese Canadians, Japanese Americans, and presented them with original internment orders from 1942 and gave them, as those people had, 48 hours, 24 hours to pack and then came back and photographed what they would have brought with them to the camps. Um, so the poem's called 100, or 150 Pounds and it begins with an epigraph uh, from the BC Security Commission who organized internment in uh, Canada. Each adult will be allowed 150 pounds and each child will be allowed 75 pounds of baggage. BC Security Commission, 1942. In some, the luggage lies open like a mouth mid-sentence. In others, closed zippers grimace. What would you have brought? Slippers, a stuffed platypus, a gold watch on a chain, copper pots swaddled in bedding. The hypotheses that thinking can be things, that each decision shrinks the pained mind to the space inside a suitcase. Include lacquered chopsticks, silver forks, a hammer scarred by rust, the orders nailed to telephone poles and doors. Omit what you whispered then, most of what you've seen. I was given 48 hours notice, 24. I passed ice and pines and plains. I rode an iron serpent into the interior beside 400 others. It was humid. It was cold. If pain is remembered, to be dismissed, if fear still seeds its rotting forest. This is a gardener's trowel, a blue skein of yarn, a violin, a ukulele, a ukulele, a ukulele. This is a porch light flicked on and off in abscessed night. These are pear blossoms falling on the driveway like footprints in black ice. Memories, river stones metamorphic and worn. How many might an able-bodied individual carry through livestock stalls and mud, onto a bus, a train, into a tiny, uninsulated shack? Most say the same. It could happen again. It is happening now. I couldn't make room for a dogless collar, a houndstooth scarf, a steel urn packed in styrofoam, a letter recording blood's divisive fractions. 
my father would not have come. My mother, my stepsister, my brother. What matters is not what you bring, but what you keep. She was there. He was, too. Mm. So I'll read the last poem I'm going to read is the last one in the book. It's an elegy, so a poem for someone who's passed away. But it's also a love poem. Um, and sort of love poem I can write, which has a brain-eating insects in it. Um, <laughs> and it starts with an epigraph from the medieval monk Kenko. You should never put the new antlers of a deer to your nose and smell them. They have little insects that crawl into the nose and devour the brain. Wakeful things. Consider that the insects might be metaphor, that the antler's wet velvet scent might be Proust Madeline, dipped into a cup of tea, adorned with centrifugal patterns of azalea and willow, those fleshing the hill behind this room, walls wreathed in smoke and iron, musk of the deer head above the mantle. He was nailed in place before I was me. Through the floorboards, a caterpillar, stripped from its chrysalis by red ants, wakes as if to a house of flame. Silk frays like silver horns, like thoughts branching from a brain. After the MRI, my father's chosen father squinted at the wormholes raveling the screen and said, be good to one another. Love, how inelegantly we leave, how insistent we are to return in one form or another. I wish all of this and none of it for us, more sun, more tempest, more fear and fearlessness, more of that which is tempered, carved, and worn, creased into overlapping planes. The way I feel the world's aperture enlarge in each morning's patchwork blur of light and color while I fumble for my glasses beside the bed, lenses smudged by both our hands. When they were alive, those antlers held up the sky. Now what do they hold? Thank you. Mm. So beautiful, so beautiful. It's a stunning, stunning book. Oh, thank you, Fiona. <laughs> and um, very apt to choose that, that first poem with the, the list of these ordinary objects. There's an accumulation that happens. And I love the ukulele, 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 the music uh, mm -hmm. comes through there and the glasses and so forth. These ordinary objects that are, are a lens, but also hold so much resonance um, throughout. And yes, memory. Did you have to interview your family or did you have family stories or... There were family stories, but um, there was also, I think, when I was younger, at least, my grandparents were more reticent to talk about their experiences. Yeah. Um, there's an expression among Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans of their generation and older generations, a shikata ganai, uh, it can't be helped, um, which is kind of a, an expression that puts the emphasis or attention on like the present and the future rather than the past. But, you know, as I got older, I learned more and I did interview both my grandparents. Um, oh. And sadly, my grandmother passed away 
not long after I started writing the book. And so it changed the shape of the book. And there were a lot of elegies for her and also elegies, I guess, for all the memories she held. Yes. And with, with this kind of writing, you're, and with all the books, we're inhabiting, the writers are inhabiting the past mm-hmm. to bring it to the present. Um, it is already in the present, but people might not see it that way. You make the, the invisible visible, um, as the saying goes, for, for what right. writers do. Derek Walcott talks about a poetics that would conjugate the past and present tense simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what exactly. all the poems I'm interested in are trying to do. And that's what the, an object can do, right? If we're talking about like this, like these suitcases of objects that stand for lives and for experiences. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We can think about that. I mean, Shana, I mean, the Holocaust, all the objects as well in the, in the museums and hair and shoes and Hannah's suitcase and so forth. Um, can you just say that again um, uh, more slowly, Michael? We're conjugating the past with the present? Simultaneously. It's a quote from Derek Walcott's Nobel lecture. That was a poetics he sought to um, kind of capture in his work. And I, I strongly kind of feel a kinship with that Mm -hmm. it's so true it's so Mm -hmm. true and if you're an effective writer it works seamlessly it works seamlessly so you talk about the change what had you intended with the book before it became more elegiac I think the the book would be more probably more archive driven and more documentary in some ways Ah. because I had done a bunch of research Um, and of course, as a poet, my, my approach to research is perhaps not as systematic as Shana's or, or Eve's, um, because I'm really just a magpie, right, picking out the things that interest me and thinking about the connections between these particular documents, but, um, or particular, like, you know, things. Um, but I think her, her passing made me think more about the ways in which memory is an embodied thing often in living memory of the internment. And these years is slipping away very quickly. You know, my grandfather's almost 90. Um, you know, and, and his generation will be the last to have experienced it. And soon it'll be a thing that only lives in the archive or in the stories we tell about it and in the ways we try and reimagine it. Exactly. Did you actually go to Tashmi and any of the other internment camps? I did. I did. Um, I've been to Tashmi many times. You know, it's a, it's a like, kind of summer cottage community called Sunshine Valley now. It's the Hope. They've built a museum there now. There's like acknowledgement. When I was growing up, there was nothing. My first book, Model Disciple, actually ends with an 18-page blank verse poem, so 10 syllables a line. And it's about going with my grandfather on a two-week road trip to visit all the internment campsites in British Columbia, which is something we did um, when I was uh, doing my first graduate degree. And we, it was a really um, powerful and... Um, surprising trip um and so i wrote about it in this poem um so yeah we we went together actually yeah my grandmother was not interested in going that would make an amazing poetry video or documentary that trip a road trip like that Mm -hmm. uh very very powerful poems um and so beautifully crafted thank you real attention to the detail how long was this book in the making Oh, um, I had started writing it when I, like, I guess not long after I, I handed in the manuscript of my first book. So it's five years in the making, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And Eve, you, you cover the Japanese Canadian internment as well when you write about the Hastings Park uh, livestock building. I did through the building. Yeah, I found that fascinating because I sort of 
taken my kids there for years and years at the P&E and, and, you know, to see Big Bob or whatever. And I didn't know anything about it. There was nothing. I think there's a little plaque or something there that you really can't find. And it was absolutely shocking to me to find out its history, but even more so that, that we didn't have anything out there about it. Why weren't we telling people about what had happened, what these buildings had been used for? And at one point they were going to, th- you know, d- demolish them as we did for everything. And fortunately someone, you know, came to their senses and, and didn't. So we've got this memorial. I don't know how you feel about it, Michael, but to me it's really important that it's there. I, I would just like to see more about it. Yeah, I mean, my grandparents were there. I heard there was a TV show, The Terror, um, which they filmed a, a season using those, uh, George Takei was in it. Um, and they filmed there actually as a stand-in for some of the processing centers for people, um, terrible word, um, in the American internment and the American mm-hmm. incarceration. Um, yeah, Lewis Hyde, the scholar, writes about how all nations are, in a, are simultaneously caught between processes of forgetting and remembering. And, you know, um, and how we shape these processes and what we choose, you know, for them says a lot about who we are. Um, you know, what do we forget or what do we have to let go of and what do we have to hold on to? Um, it's interesting in, in your poem how you flipped from what you would take to what you omit. And, you, and that's a very powerful moment when you go omit and, and we land on that, you know. Or I think about that connecting to, to Eve and things being walled, things that are hidden. And then they become exposed to new generations. And maybe they have the, the sense that, that that present generation has, has not had to appreciate them. So, yeah, there seems like a, like a patterning to this. Yes. What we remember, what we omit. Yes. Shana, in your book, were there things you felt you had, like, that were omitted or deliberately omitted? Or, like, silences or gaps that had to be left in place for the story to work? Um, or to, like, be true to the historical record in some way? Well, there's, um, thanks for that question. Yeah, there's a whole character who, who the, um, the general's wife, who I was very fond of, and she deals with the past um, through silence. And their marriage is one long tract of silence until he meets Petra. And Petra's sort of job is to bring him out and into the world and into the light. And he takes that challenge and tries to become that person through a process of renewal, sort of green renewal. And, um, and so I was always very interested in, in that, how some people deal with the past. I mean, I think it's pretty probably very similar to what you were just saying about the, the Japanese experience. You know, something terrible happened to her in the war, and her way of dealing with it is to leave it. And she thinks Petrus so young and so naive to think that you talk about violence. You don't. At one point, Helena says, you don't. You let brambles grow over it. You let mm-hmm. birds come. You let a hundred years of, of, of things grow over you rather than speak about it. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the character of the general and his past, his wartime past uh, in your book, Shana, as well. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he sort of, he decides to kind of try to lean into uh, a renewal with Petra, I mean, he falls in love with her as a, you know, he just plain old, older guy falls in love with a beautiful younger woman. And, you know, all of that, you know, what that entails. And then on top of it, he has, a, a, he's from that earlier generation. And so there's that dance of generations, you know, 
as there as there is in in your work, Michael. You know this this I read one of your poems um, this afternoon when I was lying on my couch, and it, oh, it was so beautiful. It was about your mother mm-hmm. and yeah, in a field. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, is that is that from this from this book? I think that one's from the next book that I'm working oh. on. Right oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I look forward to just beautiful. My mother, mother will be so happy that you like that poem. <laughs> yeah, does she know I about it? Does she, does she know about it? I mean, does she know about that poem? And it's very, very, very um, searing. Yeah, she does. Um, and this, I mean, I, I guess brings us to the questions like the ethics of writing about family or about the yeah. ethics of writing about real life people too and yeah. stuff, you know? Um, and those quandaries, but she does like the poem. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Lucky for me. Yeah. Let's dive into the ethical quandaries. Um, like Shana, we have the real Petra Kelly here in her real life and with some other books, not necessarily your books, but other people's books they've written about say the cellist of Sarajevo or, you know, somebody mm. and they get sued. Um, has there any been any problem with the fact that you have fictionalized her? No. And I consider myself very lucky. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the uh, uh, I did, um, you know, go to Berlin and meet some of the people who had been very, very involved in her story. Um, ex-lovers, dear friends and, um, so far, they have all loved the book, which was, you know, I held my breath. That wasn't a given. And some of them, not, you know, not only, um, you know, were they dear friends, but they kind of squidgied into the story in a way because, you know, they, they you know, so I was kind, I was sometimes, I mean, talk about, you know, this ethical, bizarre ethical dance that we do. Um, I was fictionalizing people who were alive in Germany, you know, and um and so it was it was complex and I felt very lucky when when one of them I sent him the book and he he wrote back and said you know that at first he was shocked and then he just couldn't figure out what was fiction and what was not fiction and then he said finally I just gave up and I just read it and and he loved it That's so that was, I felt like yeah I felt like I got a huge you know knighthood <laughs> Was fiction one way to bridge over some of the gaps in knowledge? For me? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what you do is you, I mean, for me, there was a story, but I, we don't know the whys. We don't know the psychologies. We don't know what happened underneath. And that was always the question for me is, is and they don't, nobody knows. Nobody actually knows why, what happened with Pet- Petra Kelly and the general happened. And you know, it's 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 just up to us to try to imagine over successive years. I mean, you know how how this work happens. You, I mean, I'm curious what 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 even and and Michael and, and Fiona what you're going to say about this. But for me, I I work on it. I leave it. I work on it. I leave it. And you just spend so much time, kind of just weaving this weird little thing, and then eventually, hopefully. It, it gets at something that, that you couldn't if you just threw yourself at it once or twice. But what, what, tell me about you guys' process. I'm so curious. Like with Eve, you had a, a layering of people responding to your blog, which you could p- patch into your, your pieces. Yeah. Um, 
I guess if I'm talking about the ethics, this was a fairly easy one because it was just getting people's permission to use their quotes and and their comments um, and their pictures and whatever. It's more the true crime that I really wrestle with this because, you know, I'm writing about the worst thing that's ever happened to someone, you know, their their mother or their daughter or it's gone missing, it's been murdered, it's unsolved, it's, you know, you can't imagine anything worse. So I'm always very, very careful and very, very aware of that when I'm writing a blog or even a post on Facebook or a book, um, probably Murder by Milkshake. Um, Just quickly, if people don't know the story, back in 1965, Rini Castellani was a celebrity with CKW and he fell in love with Lolly, the 25-year-old receptionist, and so decided to murder his wife, Esther, with arsenic and um, so he could marry Lolly. And they had an 11-year-old daughter. And it it came about, like I wrote a story about on my blog again, and um, I made a mistake. I said that Lolly had a six-year-old daughter and I got this message from this woman, Debbie, and she said, oh, no, you're wrong. Um, Lolly had a son, Don, that's my husband, Don, and he's been looking for Janine, the Castellani's daughter, who was 11, for 50 years. Do you know where she is? And I said, oh, no, no idea. Um, Thanks for writing. And then I had a book launch from my book, Blood, Sweat and Fear, about Inspector Vance at the Vancouver Police Museum. And we'd set up a bar in the autopsy suite, um, which was quite great. And it was right by the true crime exhibit of where Esther had an exhibit and where her body had been brought when she was exhumed back in, you know, 1967. So I'm sitting there having my glass of wine. I've done my, you know, book launch (laughs) thing. And Janine, this woman comes up and says, hi, I'm Janine. I'm Castellani. I'm the the daughter. And and it's like, oh, where do you go from here? This is so, because you know what a book launch is like? It's like having a wedding, right? So so we arranged a time to meet and um, met up and met up. And I, I just love this because it was me telling her story from her point of view, what it was like to have a father who, who she believed was innocent for, for decades um, until she realised he wasn't. And so to, to me, that was a great privilege to, you know, for her to entrust that with me and help me tell the story and dig it up and tell the story of a mother and, and answer all these questions that uh, and a lot of times we couldn't. Very interesting. Now, mm-hmm. Michael, so Eve got permissions. Did you get permissions <laughs> from anybody? Uh, I think, I mean, in a sense, yes, my family approves as far as I know. Um, <laughs> I, I tell my, I talk with my students about this, you know, um, about like poetry as a mechanism for discovery, um, discovering things about yourself, your relationship with the world. Um, and that what we're after is an emotional truth rather than the factual truth often, right? Though sometimes there is factual truth. And when it comes to the ethics of like how you represent your family, how you represent people you love, people you're close to, or just real life figures, you know, there's often a lot more, I think, kind of perhaps fluidity in how you do that and like writing a true crime book. But I also tell them the story of like Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop and like their letters. And there was a point, um, these two famous, you know, mid-century American poets, and there was a point when um, Lowell decided that his newest book of poems was going to be, he was going to take all these letters um, that he had written back and forth with his ex-wife, um, and he was going to turn them into sonnets and publish this book where it's just basically kind of like these poems made from these letters. And he wasn't going to get her permission. He was just going to do it. And he told Bishop this, and she wrote back and said, art just isn't worth that much. You know, mm-hmm. so don't do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he still did it. 
Um, and he lost a lot of friends. Adrian Rich yeah. refused to talk to him after and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I think I kind of fall more on the Bishop side of things. Um, there are things like that happened on my road trip with my grandfather that he asked me specifically not to put in the poem. Oh, um, my editor was quite dismayed that I took them out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or that I, I shaped silences around them. Um, but, you know, ultimately I write out of love for my family and yeah. I have to be able to sleep at night. <laughs> yes. Shana, did you have to get permissions at all or did you attempt to? No, I didn't. I didn't try to get permissions and I didn't set it up to get permissions. I sent people the book when it was done. Um, I didn't want to be in that relationship. It's not, um, it's fiction. And so in a sense, there's, it's not really necessary to get permissions. I think the permission comes from, um, you just try to do it with integrity. You try to do it with love. You try to do it with depth. And, you know, it's like any of this. I mean, fiction is you're throwing yourself into other people's skins. It's a very tricky thing to do. And, um, and so you just, you're just, you just have to hope that that you're doing it with integrity and, and, and check your internal. I mean, there's been stories I would never tell. There's been stories people have told me and I, I know they're not mine to tell. So you kind of try to keep that part of yourself really ticking so that, so that other stories you, you do get to tell. And then I've had funny experiences um, with short stories where I've told stories that where the person was, you know, I thought fairly recognizable. And I went to them to tell them what I'd done. And to my astonishment, when I gave them the story, they loved it. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't mind being fictionalized. In fact, I had one story called The Cage where I fictionalized somebody, you know, he puts himself in a, um, in a cage outside the Vancouver Aquarium. And I, this person was famous for doing this. And he said, you're not the first person who's fictionalized me, you know, <laughs> he's a larger than life guy, you know, he's had other people come along and tell his story as well. So, and, and he gave me his blessing for that story, which I was, I was very, very pleased with, but yeah, you sit, you sit in a funny, in a funny relationship to these things. Cause you, people offer you these, or you, 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 you get beguiled. And next thing you know, you're, you're writing about it. And next thing you know, you really want it. And so it's, it's not that easy to give up, you know? Okay. And so, yeah, you have to, I guess you kind of have to, have to watch what you're doing as you go along. Yes. Very, very true. But all three of you are so, they beautifully evoke time and place and voice. That's why you guys have winning books here. Um, they're, they're wonderful, all in, in their own individual way. That was Fiona Tinway Lam. Fiona is a poet and the City of Vancouver's Poet Laureate. She was in discussion with Shana Lambert, author of Petra, Eve Lazarus, author of Vancouver Exposed, and Michael Pryor, author of Burning Province. If you'd like to find out more about these authors as well as our storied series, you can find out more information on our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. We also share news about events and our winners and finalists on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is the last episode of this season of Writing the Coast. I will be taking a couple months off while the BC and Yukon Book Prizes announces the 2022 shortlists in April, and then I will be back with new episodes featuring conversations with the 2022 shortlisted authors. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.